Welcome to Screen Thoughts with Hollister and O'Toole. Hey, O'Toole. This is a cry. Hey there, Hollister. <laughs> this is our crying week. This Do you is, have your Kleenex right there next to your mic? You know, love story meets Titanic meets me before you. Yeah, listen, I'm on it. And we can close this. Taxi! Yeah, we won't. Don't worry. This is our Lit Lovers podcast, and we have a um, partnership with Lit Lovers. And the book, she's actually the woman who runs Lit Lovers, suggested that we do this movie because Me Before You is one of the biggest books in the book club genre. And, and a huge book around the world. It's sold over 5 million copies in 40 different countries. Well, what's also interesting is that took place a number of years ago. And then the day the trailer for the movie came out, the book went from number 141 on the book, uh, the best-selling list, to number three. So a trailer, I know, a trailer brought the book sales right back up to the top of the line. What an amazing thing that is, huh? The power of the book and the power of the movie. Now, should we start with the book? I think we should start with the book this time. Okay. Okay, so uh, you read the book a while ago, right? Isn't that... Well, it came out in 2012, and it's kind of funny, Hollister, because a German friend sent me the book in German. (laughs) It was a huge book over there, and Jojo Moyes was voted the author of the year. In German, it was called An Entire Half a Year, and the cover was different. It had little red flowers all over the book, and it said the biggest romance of the year. So I didn't really know what I was getting into until about page three. And then I thought, you know, given the themes of the book, I'm kind of glad I read it in German because I don't think I could have handled it in English. Oh, interesting. Um, well, I listened to it in English. <laughs> and oh, did you I, do the audiobook? I did do the audiobook. And, you Excellent. know, it's not necessarily like I didn't, you know, I mean, I remember reading Love Story, which, you know, came out, I read it right after seeing the movie and, you know, and I sort of breezed through that. I thought this was very complex for this kind of story where, you know, where, um, you know, clearly one of the two of them is perhaps going to die, um, for this kind of story, I thought there were so many amazing complex layers. And, and the growth of her in the book, I thought, was much stronger than the growth of her in the movie from this sort of silly girl to a person of substance who started to recognize her own internal value. So I thought the book was had many more pages to sort of layer in the nuances that were going to show us uh, the growth of this person, where you can't do that in an hour and a half movie. I remember seeing the movie The Color Purple and then reading Alice Walker's yeah, brilliant exactly. novel, and I was shocked at how much more was in the book. <laughs> but Hollister, I loved this quote by Vanity Fair. They said Jojo Moyes's book, quote, is an existential work that's masquerading as a beach read. And uh, I thought that just summed I, it up I perfectly. I couldn't agree more. I mean... I again I thought it was going to be like a love story read which is really like water skiing through a sad tale where you can cry at the end and rather than deep sea diving into these incredible things going on but the other thing is you know our culture and certainly Hollywood has always valued living not death mm-hmm. and the book really plays it out I think in a in a very very strong way but I don't think either the book nor the movie really lets us understand what a changeover his life before was versus his life after. Like it's shown in pictures and it's sort of described a bit in the book. 
but I don't really know that guy before well enough. He's just touched on in such a light way, whereas we see her so much more vividly because of her um, assault and rape situation. And so we see her past entering into the present much more than his. Did you did you think you that know, too? I did not get that sense, and I was glad that they didn't dwell on it. They made the point very early in the book and very early in the movie. You know, Jojo Moy started out as a journalist. This was actually her ninth novel. She had written eight books before this, and I wow. it was huh. this theme that just set off, you know, a furor around the world that people were picking it up right. and discussing it. She was inspired by a news article she had read about a rugby player who became a quadriplegic and his huh. family was going to accompany him to Dignitas. And her first reaction as a mother was how could a family member do that? And the more she read about it and then while oh, I she, understand it totally. I do too. And while she was writing the book she had two family members in similar situations with 24-hour care. And I thought she did a great job of not making it a polemic on euthanasia, but you could focus on the love story. Mm-hmm. Now, they also chose her to do the screenplay for the yes. movie, which was, you know, was a bit of a quantum leap because she'd never done one before. Yes. I thought she did an excellent job in adapting it. And I you? totally agree, Hollister. Uh-huh. She is such a visual writer. She is a natural as a screenwriter. And it's one of the few things you really see in Hollywood where the author was so happy with the process and the casting. And she's already been signed on to adapt two more of her novels. Yeah. I, th- I was going to say, I think she'll be able not even to do just her own. I think she, she's a good screenwriter in her own right. And I think she juxtapositions between past and present and future and past. You know, I think she does that mm-hmm. really, really well, too. So, But you talked about the casting. Okay, so interestingly enough, you know, Emily Clark, you know, yes. uh, everyone knows her, obviously, from Game of Thrones, where she's, mm-hmm. you know, Khaleesi, and who, by the way, I read that somewhere what an actor she is because those two roles if you watch 10 minutes of her in each of those two roles you're seeing a spectrum of an actor going to two totally separate places to be two totally separate women in two totally separate times she is extremely talented extremely talented don't you think Jojo Moyes was so funny because they said when they first told her that's who they were thinking of to play Lou Clark she said blonde dragon lady from Game of Thrones. Yeah, that blonde dragon lady. And she's not even blonde, she's white-haired, she's albino. Exactly, you know, Jojo Moy said when Amelia Clark walked in to play Lou Clark, she was so the character, Mm -hmm. and this is the greatest accolade a writer can pay an actor. Jojo Moy said she can no longer write the character without picturing Amelia Clark. She was excellent, but here's the thing, there is a flaw in her performance, I think. Is it the eyebrows? And that is... Well, we're going to talk about that in a minute. Okay. But the, and I don't think that's a flaw. I just couldn't take my eyes off her eyebrows. I've never seen such a, a unibrow that could do so many things in my life. you know. And she doesn't use them that way in Game of Thrones. But okay, but forget the eyebrows. Okay. Okay. I don't think she was able to show the growth of the character enough. Like at the end... I just didn't recognize the depths and the knowledge base and the growth that she had had as a young woman. And I, I feel like she missed that a little bit. You know, she still was in character a little bit as if it were still toward the very beginning. So from my perspective, I felt like I wanted to see a little more of that serious 
okay, now I'm going to be a somebody kind of person out there. I, I saw it much more in the book than I did in the movie. That's the one, the one flaw. But she's mesmerizing on the screen, totally entertaining in those eyebrows. Like, are they dancing by themselves? What are they? Um, you know, she almost looks like a very animated, happy Rachel Weiss. But um, it's very interesting to me because I thought Jojo Moyes did such a good disciplined adaptation of paring down the characters and the subplots to just the essential. So for example, she left out Will's sister. She left out the father's affair, the parents' jobs, the girl that went running around the block trying to bump into Patrick. But she left out the rape assault. Yes. And she, and by the way, the rape assault is critical to why she dresses the way she does to camouflage herself. That was a mistake. It was, I don't think that was a good thing. For the character growth. Well, it's so interesting because they tried for six months to keep it in. And she said, whereas in the book, you can mention it a little opaquely when you're on the big screen, they could not find a way to tell that story where it just didn't overshadow the love story and everything else the movie was trying to do. I thought it was so critical to showing why she had been, why this amazingly intelligent person was lost in the moment of not wanting to being totally comfortable. I thought without it, I don't understand who that person was inside that was all of a sudden let loose. Now, if you think about it, he was, he was, you know, for me, the juxtaposition of it all was here he was stuck in this wheelchair where he had been this flying, amazing person beforehand. And she had been stuck in the wheelchair of her own home from, from the trauma of the assault. They flip positions. And then all of a sudden she is this, you know, flying bird and he's stuck in the wheelchair. So it was this, it was a flip flop a pancake flip or whatever you want to call it. And I think without it, you miss you. It's just a little, it just, doesn't have the nuance or the incredible worth. Uh, you know, the book was not a simple love story, 120 page book. Um, you know, it, 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 and it was sort of reduced to that on the screen. So I liked that they left it out. I think it would have been too much of a tonal shift in the movie because from the get-go in the story, I thought this is what Jojo Moy set up so brilliantly, is that from the very beginning, you realize that Lou's family is dependent on her. Whereas Will, who had been so financially independent, is dependent on his family and his caretaker, Nathan, for everything else. And so from the get-go, I already liked that that was the dynamic. Yeah, but by leaving it out, um, it doesn't show that they exchanged places because we have no real reason why she never, ever, a brain that smart and that good and that brilliant, why was she totally stuck at home? What made her stuck at home? It just wasn't strong enough. So if they were not going to do it, I think they needed to replace it with something that would have explained her her um, reticence to, to leave the nest. See, I think a lot of people around the world would probably take issue with the fact that we're judging her for not leaving this town with a beautiful castle and her family in it and populated with people. And I thought her monologue that Jojo Moyes gave her when Will asks her that very question, why aren't you in London, as opposed to a small town, because I guess we think every young person should be in a big city, when she gives him that monologue about what she could foresee her life in London looking like, I thought it was great. See, the monologue was fine, but I don't think it was because she wouldn't leave the small town. For me, it was that she was stuck without passion, without interest. She was just 
going through the motions of living a, 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 a you know, a, a life without uh, passion and, and, and drive and things you care about. And, and I think that the assault helps to understand that. So... Yeah, see, and yet I think she was leading her life through kindness, which you see when we're first introduced to her working as a waitress. Um, so for me, I, I, you know, yeah. I think they were right yeah. to leave it out. Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I think it would be very interesting, people who have read this for book club, how they feel about it. For me, I thought it was just really important that it be in there. But the other thing is, um, if, you look at, if you look at Love Story and you look at Titanic, and now you look at this, and I think they all have the same overriding message. So in Love Story, she gets cancer and she dies, leaving him behind. And she points out to him that he'll have a good life anyway because she's not, you know, everything, even though he feels it. Now, on Titanic, he makes her promise to go live this great life, right, before he slips into the water and, and, and dies. Okay, and now we've got, we, now we've got, you know, me before you. And it's sort of like you can, the message to these women um, or in Love Story, a man, is the person who's leaving is saying the best gift you can give to me is to live your best life mm-hmm. and be your best self. And I love that overriding message. And I think this is going to be this generation's love story, Titanic. Here, I liked the economic disparity and the fact that... All three movies have the coming together of classes that don't normally merge. They all have that in common. That's true. So mm-hmm. we have, yes, we have Harvard, we have the Titanic ship, and we yeah. have a castle in this. That is, that exactly. is true. Yeah. I, I think they're very, very, very similar in threads that talk about the overriding message of, um, I hope that I made you be your best self, and I hope I elevated you to your best self. And one of the things that I think is so important in any romantic relationship is, does the other person make you want to be your very best self, and do they believe you can be? And if you've got those two elements, and it's certainly, um, you know, a very rich, rich relationship indeed. Interesting choice of footwear. What do you mean by that? That can't be from around here. Why not? Because this is the kind of place people come to when they got tired of actually living. I'm happy here. Yeah, well, you shouldn't be. You only get one life. It's actually your duty to live it as fully as possible. Jojo Moyes has said that she is a, quote, quietly feminist writer, and she wants to make sure that her female characters do things. They don't just buy things. Oh, and they're, she they're overriding. She yeah. really did. And their overriding desire is not to find a man to make their lives complete. She said her test is, would her teenage daughter get a good message from whatever she's out there creating? I think she certainly did this. Something that surprised me This film was directed by a woman, Thea Sherrock, who's a big theater director, and she's done a couple episodes of Call the Midwife. Did you know there are only two movies coming out this summer directed by women? And now we've seen them both. What was the other one? Money Monster by Jodie Foster. Of course, yeah, yeah. But that's Mm -hmm. not really that surprising, actually, if you look at the overriding numbers. But um, the other thing is there's, you know, there's a huge conversation um, a little bit of a backlash about the movie coming out, but what's also around with the book is the value of life. You know, is this kind of movie devaluing life in a way that sort of um, makes, uh, you know, fantasizes about uh, how it's how it's good and okay and worth uh, taking your own life if you can't live your best life physically or emotionally or whatever? Is it romanticizing um, death and 
there's I, I I didn't see it that way, but I know there's been much talk about it outside on the on the range and stuff. So I did want to bring it up. Did you think that it deval it devalues death in some way that way? I did not, and I liked that she set it up as this is everyone's own personal choice. Yeah. Um, and I read a very interesting book. Daniel Gilbert, who is a happiness expert, wrote a book called Stumbling on Happiness. And he said that whereas we all think that we know what we would do if we were facing certain circumstances, we are all terrible predictors of our future selves in terms of what would make us happy and what would make us unhappy. Mm-hmm. And he did a study with people who became quadriplegics and paraplegics, and many of them um, do adjust to a happiness level they had before these accidents. So it's certainly, you know, everyone is different, and I just don't think any of us really knows how we would react given the same set of circumstances. Yeah, exactly. I, yeah. Now, um, did you know that... Um, that Amelia uh, talked him into waxing his legs for the role? No. Why was that necessary? It wasn't. She just thought it made him look better. (laughs) Was that part of their pranking on each other? Mm, I don't think so, but I think she just thought it was better if he waxed his legs, so he did. And did you know that you know how in the the book and in the movie she gets a bumblebee tattoo, right? Did you know that Amelia's first tattoo was a little is a little bumblebee on her finger? I did not know that. I found that crushing in in the book where in the book Will gets a tattoo with the expiration date best before. They left that out of the movie, but Jojo Moyes has said she really did own the bumblebee tights in her childhood. That's something she pulled right out of her own life. Mary, stay. Tell me something good. When I was little, my favorite outfit was my bumblebee tights. Bumblebee tights. Black and yellow stripes. Oh, dear God. Didn't you ever love anything that much? Yes. I want to give a big shout out to Sam Claflin from The Hunger Games, who plays Will. You know, something that is so remarkable is how well he acted without being able to move his body for virtually the entire film. (laughs) They said when they were casting Misery, it was so hard to find a male lead because once the actors heard they would be chained to a bed the entire movie, they're like, "I, I don't think I can do that. The quirk of his eyebrow, his sardonic humor, what he pulled off with just his face was really remarkable. Well, he talked about how hard it was to play the role, and I'm thinking to myself, look, you get to sit and do nothing. All you have to do is speak. Seems to me like that's easier than why, you know, she's bouncing around being the bumblebee girl. But, and then I thought, well, maybe, I, to me, that's like the perfect role, okay? I just sit here and everybody gets to move around and make things happen. And then I did recognize, okay, it's a little harder than it looks, but yes. I didn't understand it when he first talked about it. I mean, you're absolutely right, but I just want to say that I now needed to learn to, uh, uh, you know, to admire how difficult that really was. Can I say how much I enjoyed the scenes with both Will and Patrick in them? I thought that was some great dialogue. Oh, she did dialogue really, really well, but she does in the book too. Like she, she knows really how to write does. dialogue. She's a dialogue girl. And she yeah. knows how to mix in humor so that we can handle this glossy yeah. tearjerker of a movie. She said that she loves sparring dialogue, kind of like the classic Hollywood movies. Uh-huh. But she also wants to make sure that her characters talk like real life people do, where you can love somebody. But she said, for example, she and her husband in any given day 
might bicker with one another, do something loving towards the other. You know, it runs that whole range. Right, right. And exactly. I think she did that very, very well. Wait, are you saying now, O'Toole? Yes. Is this the first movie in five podcasts that you've liked? I mean, I, I don't want to. I, I don't want to push my luck here. But can I just ask if maybe, oh. just maybe, we've crossed the threshold here? You know, I was. I'm not even sure if enjoy is the right verb for me to use because there were people sobbing in the theater. I saw it at the biggest movie theater in New England on opening night in Boston. They had to move it into an even bigger movie theater because so many people came out to see this movie. Hollister, they were bawling and I was kind of thrilled going, finally, a movie that feels like a movie to me with a narrative Did you arc, cry? With emotional connections. Oh, not a crier. Did you cry? You know, I didn't. And then I thought, well, maybe, you know, there's something wrong with me. But because I had read the book... Um, and this felt like a very glossy version where with the beautiful visuals of the castle and the clothes and her clothes as a character and his clothes, I felt like the characters and the acting let me know that it was going to be okay. It probably also helped that I have already read her sequel, After You. And if any, anyone out there is looking for the perfect antidote to the plot of Me Before You, I recommend After You. Okay, well, I'll have to pick that up. But now we have to talk about her dad, who you know from... Brendan who is my favorite Coyle. Character? Yes, Bates from yes. Downton Abbey. And there he was. And when he sits down with her at the end... Now, by the way, that was also a big difference from the book. You know, he's never that kind guy in the book. And he's not. And I... I understand why she made the change, and I sort of wondered if she was, if she were to write the book again, would she have made him a nicer at the end? In other words, would she have layered that into the book? Because it's the only place where she changed the book to, in, in the movie, and I'm wondering if she did that on purpose. But well, she when and he her sat down sister and, had a much more benign relationship too. I know. Yes. Well, but when she, um, when when he talks to her, I started crying then, and I didn't stop till the end of the film. And I saw the film. Thursday night before it opened at a private screening, and I just cried from that moment on. But I, there were only other two, a couple other people in the theater, and they didn't care what I was doing. I and I tried not to sniff. It's important if you're going to cry in a movie, don't just sniff own if it. you're the only one yeah. crying. Well, part yeah, of me exactly. was so shocked that there was Bates wearing jeans. <laughs> I like, know there was Bates. You know, oh my God! The character, though, and he was equally earnest. And don't you just love him on the screen? And you want him? You just want him to be related to you. He has a very kind face. You can't change who people are. I mean, what can you do? You love them. I have to say, though, the character that moved me the most in the book and in the movie was. And I don't want to overstate it, but she really got to me. The mother? Will's mother. Oh, my God. What is wrong with Played you? Played by Dame Janet McTeer from your show, uh, There's the something Honorable wrong with Woman. you, Rachel. This is the last straw. <laughs> I'm, really? I'm sorry. I, mean, I know she's supposed to be this brittle character who's already had a problematic relationship with her son. But in the what? book, and even here in the movie, when she goes to hug Charles Dance at the airport, that little moment was enough to break my heart. See, I thought the book portrayed her much more the way you're describing in the movie. I felt like the movie didn't go deep enough to see that part of her. And maybe if you hadn't read the book and only saw the movie, you would oh, not feel no. that way about her. I so totally I'm just suggesting to our nope. listeners. Nope. No, I just want to suggest to our listeners that the reason you can't see what O'Toole is saying is because you didn't read the book. So go read the book if you want I, to come I from that I disagree. Dame Janet yeah. McTeer, Charles Dance, who played Will's father. Do you know this is the fourth podcast we have mentioned him in? Well, 
gosh, aren't you a knowledge person <laughs> of all of our dance podcasts? is in everything. The Imitation Game, yeah. okay. Woman in Gold, and of course okay. he played Elizabeth Bennett's father in Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. Loving can heal. It's his fourth bout in two years. The last one nearly killed him. <sighs> Pride, Prejudice, and Zombies. We really have to bring this up all the time. You know I hated that movie. You do that on purpose. Okay, well then, okay. Well, here I'm going to mention a show that I know you like. Matthew Lewis from the Harry Potter movies, who plays Patrick, the triathlete boyfriend. He also... I, I'm sorry, why would you think I'm a Harry Potter girl? No, that's not, that's not what I'm saying. He was in season okay. two of a TV show that you loved, playing a character named Sean. Is it West Wing? It's a, it's a British show. British show? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What is it? Happy Valley. Happy Valley. I don't remember him. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. okay Wait, well, now, do you have a favorite quote? Um, from the book or from the movie? From the movie. I'm going to go with a humorous line where she's shaving Will, and he looks at her and says... Please don't tell me you shaved a line, bro. Either one. I thought it was a great, intimate, humorous moment. Well, by the way, I think some people will think that she should have shaved off her own eyebrows because they were somewhat disruptive to some of the scenes. Do you know what I mean? I think her eyebrows are amazing and she could do an entire movie without speaking, just speak with her eyebrows. Okay. Okay, so here you now you're now gonna ask me what my yes, favorite Hollister, what was okay. your favorite line? Here it is, ready? Uh-huh. It's Will. So this is it. You are scored in my heart, Clark. You were from the first day you walked in with your ridiculous clothes and your bad jokes and your complete inability to ever hide a single thing you felt. I loved that line. And I loved yeah. him when he showed. He delivered it beautifully. Oh, he yeah. really did. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. Jojo Moyes has said that's her favorite romantic line in the book. So Hollister, oh, really? she oh. would be so happy with you. Yeah, me and Jojo. Yes. Like, you know, close. I tell yeah, you what. Exactly. And when he showed up. At, I didn't know that was her favorite line. Yeah, huh? yeah her favorite cool. romantic line anyway. But when, when he shows up at her birthday party with those bumblebee tights, I thought, what a mensch. Well, no, I like that she was wearing them in Paris at the end. Oh, fabulous. Again, the clothing was... A fabulous touch, don't you think? Fabulous And again, touch. very, very visual. The clothes were their own character in this movie. Yeah. You know, yeah, we have totally. to give another shout out to Joanna Lumley, who had a cameo at the wedding. Another great scene. And if you me, you take care of him. He's a good one. She was the star, of course, of AbFab. Uh-huh. Absolutely fabulous. Wonderful cast. Re- really well cast and not, it wasn't like they went out and got the biggest names they could get. It was, they really went and fit the characters that were in the book really, really well, I thought. I really loved that at its heart, it was a romance, like an old fashioned romance. Now, by the way, uh, the annex that he lived in, I want it. Was that fabulous I, want, I mean, the way the closet's open, did you see that? All she had to do it was practically look at it and blow on it, and it opened. Beautiful. It was so I know, right? very, very visual. She really pared down her words. She did. I she think did. it was the discipline of a former journalist where you know you've got to kill your darlings. Hats off to Jojo Moyes. Hats off to her. And, you know, I just want to know... In, in between you and me, O'Toole, who's me and who's you? You know that you would be the sardonic Will. Me before will, you or me before you? Which one be is it? I would the one running around in the bubble. Come on, I want to be the me. Can I just be the me this week? I can't just be after you and run off with Sam. I just want you to know that I'll always let you go first, okay? What, so I get hit by the motorcycle? No, no one has to get hit by a motorcycle.